As Christians who have been saved through special revelation, through the gospel of Christ, when we go out and we look at nature, we glorify God, right? We understand it's from him. We, and everybody, we're going to see today, well, next week especially, but everybody should acknowledge God because of his creation, because that of which he's made, and yet sinners do not do that. So with that, I'm going to ask you to uh, please turn with me two passages to Job 26, our Old Testament reading this morning's Job 26, 7 through 14, and his majesty is unsearchable. And then we're going to go to Romans 1, 18 through 23. So Job, and just note the parallel, note the, the themes here this morning. Job 26, beginning in verse 7. Speaking of God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon. He spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hands pierced the fleeting serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? And now Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you. And once again, Lord God, I pray that you would be with all of us this morning to give us insight into your word by your spirit. Conviction, Lord God, I pray that you would be with me to bring forth your word very clearly, even as all of us sit at the feet of our teacher, our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, we are spending time in Romans 1. It's just it's not meant to, I'm not trying to, it's just that we have to, to understand it properly, I think. So last week, remember, we talked about the wrath of God, and that's a big deal, that's, a, that's the, the nature of God. We talked about common misconceptions regarding the wrath of God, what people think about that. Again, you could check out the sermon, if you have your notes from last week, obviously. Uh, we talked about, in terms of God's wrath, that it is. It's his righteous anger. Where would we be without the wrath of God? There would be lawlessness. There would be guilt all over the place. There would be no justice. So the wrath of God is the righteous anger against sin and sinners and the just punishment thereof. Praise God for that. 
Um, just as much as we love his love, we love his wrath as well because it's just. We talked about the two major categories of sin that bring this wrath of God, and that's ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, the big question when we talk about this, and the question we often get as Christians, it seems kind of difficult, especially when you're talking about Romans 1 and, and passages like this, is, is the idea, and that's what I want you to think about today, and people will ask you this question, They'll say, how can God hold a person accountable, right, if he or she never hears the gospel, the gospel message? It's, it's, you know, it's a common um, complaint against Christianity. And, and you know, how, how can God judge the, the innocent native who've never heard of Jesus Christ? How can he do that? It just doesn't seem fair. And that's especially true for those of us who've been raised in the last century or so, in the, in the Christianity that we've been raised under, most of it is the um, the, the Arminian teaching, the the free will. Uh, most evangelicals today, where it's it's really about us and the choice that we make. So that's the idea that we come to this. It's you know, how could God be fair if people never have the chance to choose Him or to make a decision for Him? And so we do wrestle with that to, to some degree. We're going to talk about that this morning, and I hope to answer that. Some of you might not be crazy with the answer, but I trust and pray that it's thoroughly biblical, and so we have to like it whether we like it or not, because it's God's Word, right? This is something people really wrestle with. I wrestled with this for many years myself. You know, you struggle with it, but in the end, this is God's Word, and we're called to submit to it. So praise God for that. Uh, that, that question is answered here about how could God be fair? How could God hold anybody accountable? It's answered in Romans 1, chapter 1, chapter 2 as well. But you have to understand this, and this is a big deal. Um, this is not a standalone scripture when it comes to our culpability before God. And that's really important to, to, note, to note that. Um, we, we not only believe in sola scriptura, but we believe in what's called tota scriptura as well, all of scripture. We take all of scripture. We don't just isolate one passage and preach on that. You have to take it in its fullness. Scripture interprets scripture. So even here with this, yes, God's general revelation, his creation, when you go out and see what he has made, that does hold you accountable. As we're going to see there's no excuse. We suppress that and so forth. But before we even get to creation, before we even get to see what God has made and know that we're accountable, we need to understand something, and you need to remember something very plainly that the Scripture teaches regarding our nature. We need to remember right away that there is no innocent native, right, who's never heard of God in that way. Because we think, what about that person way over there that's never heard about Christ, that's never heard the gospel? Number one, there is no innocent person on this planet. Go at any place and try to find one person who does not sin, who doesn't break God's moral law, even if they've never heard the name of Christ, right? Anywhere we go, we see that. So what's in view here is the doctrine of election. So even before we get to general revelation, we need to talk about this a little bit because it'll make it clear for you. Hopefully, it'll, it'll teach you that. It's not just the, the general revelation that, that keeps us guilty. We're already guilty. What we do is we suppress what God has shown us. It shows us how guilty we really are, right? We'll kind of unpack that as we go through this. The Bible is very, very clear that we are sinners by nature. 
by choice as well, but by nature. We are born this way. Do you remember that song by Lady God? Born this way. Absolutely. I know she didn't mean it the way that we're meaning it, but she's absolutely right. We are born this way. What does that mean? Here's what it means. And you need to listen. It means that we are already guilty. We come into the world already guilty. Do you understand that? We're already under God's judgment. That's the deal. That's the real deal. No matter if you're born here or South America or in the deepest parts of the African jungle, we are already guilty. We are already under God's judgment. We're already deserving of his wrath. That's why the good news is such good news, because we bring it to, to lost people. Now, you need to get this into your heart. This is a tough teaching. It really is. Again, I'll tell you, I struggle with this myself, and there are many who have struggled with this. Isn't there just a little bit of goodness in us? Isn't there just something that we could bring to God that, that he'll be pleased with? That you know, Doesn't he give us a little bit of ability to make a choice for him? Bible's plain. It says no way. We're all shut up under sin, as we talked about last week. Bible's plain on this. So let's look at some passages regarding this. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we see what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So this is the covenant of life, right? Adam had every tree there, one tree could not partake of, and he did do that eventually. That day that he did, he died. Not just physically, he would die, but spiritually. The separation from God, we're condemned in that way. Romans 5.12 tells us this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, as we just read, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. So as we die, death, we're all going to face that. That shows us and teaches us that we're under the wrath and curse, that we're guilty sinners before the Lord. Bible is very clear. Psalm 51.5 says this. Behold, David says... I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from the womb, in that sense, we are sin, sinners. John 3.36. It's been a very familiar passage for you these past several weeks, if you haven't noticed. Sometimes we go through that. There's just passage week after week. It kind of seems to come up. The word says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So if you believe in Jesus, you will be in heaven. Whoever does not obey the Son or believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that's important to understand. It remains. What does that presuppose? That we're already under wrath. It's not like we've, you know, we've, we're coming under wrath. We are, we're already under that judgment. It is already upon us. It presupposes that. So, you come out of that. You, you get away from his wrath as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're already under this. Is he getting the picture? I hope so. Uh, John 5, 25, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, verily, verily, understand this. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Amen. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What's that presuppose? He was already under the sentence of death. Now he's passed into life as we trust in Christ. And one more, just so you get this, just so you understand our natural state, that we are sinners by nature. So we're not just, you know, it's not just the creation that, uh, not, not coming to God through the creation that we are condemned. We're already condemned. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll read this, verses 1 to 3. 
Paul is speaking to Christians, those who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, and you were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, they were alive physically, but spiritually they were dead. They weren't believing in God. They weren't trusting in God. They weren't looking, just like all of us at one time, right? Okay, you know this. Um, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then he goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy sent Christ to save us. So do you you understand this? We're already there. So R.C. Sproul either popularized this, I don't think it's original with him, But he says this, mark this down, get this down. It's really important. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's not we're born this innocent little person and then we sin and then we become sinners in that way. No, 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 no. We're already sinners. And that just comes through as we grow. So that is something to understand. Again, go anywhere on this planet and you will find not one holy, innocent person, not deserving of God's wrath. You know that. Before you're a Christian, as you look back, you know that you deserve God's judgment. No? Absolutely. We all deserve judgment. Let that sink in. Get that in your hearts. Right? What God does is he gives the gift of grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Right? There's nothing good in us that would make God say, oh, I like you, so yeah, because here's what you do. Yeah, you've made this. No. God chooses those whom he will according to his good pleasure, according to his purpose. We'll talk much more about this as we get to Romans 8 and 9. But he will give salvation to whom he will. The Bible calls these people his elect, his chosen people. We can't avoid it. It's in scripture all over the place. He gives grace to them. So now, the closest illustration that I could come to this idea, many of you have already heard, and obviously it's not original with me, is that of a governor who pardons certain criminals. And there are a few premises here, and then the conclusion. First of all, it's the governor's prerogative who he pardons on whatever his criteria may be. He'll give a pardon to the criminal. Secondly, everybody there is guilty, presumably. I know you, oh, this person's not there unjustly. We're not talking. Everybody who's there is guilty. So what does that guilty person deserve. They deserve justice. They don't deserve anything else. They deserve what they've earned. Right? So everybody's guilty. Number two, some receive justice whom the governor pardons. I'm sorry, some those receive justice. That's what they receive. The guilty receive justice. Some receive mercy. Those whom the governor would pardon receive mercy. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. Why did I get this? Why did he pardon me? Why am I forgiven? Why why do I have this? By his grace, his own purpose, his own reason. The last point is this. Nobody receives injustice. Not one person receives injustice. You can't say, God, you're not just. If we're all guilty, we all deserve that punishment and that justice. God will show mercy to whom he will, but the, but the people that receive justice don't receive anything that they haven't earned. Is that, is that clear? Is that plain? That's kind. Of, that's the Bible's teaching of our state. Also, God will bring the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
That's what he does. We bring the gospel out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the remotest part of the earth, in order to reach his people. That's what he does sovereignly. That's why Christians go out. That's why when the gospel goes out, it often goes out at the cost of many people's lives. You know, we put our lives on the line because the devil doesn't want you to have that gospel message being proclaimed in these different places. But we send people out all over the world, beginning here, and preaches the gospel boldly, and oftentimes there's hostility, there's consequence, right? And even lives are taken for doing this. But God has determined to bring his message to the end of the earth in order to reach his people. Who are his people? His chosen. Who are his people? His sheep who will hear and respond in faith. Others are going to reject. Others are going to refuse. But his people will hear and they will respond. This is it. This is what the Bible teaches about our salvation. He has a people. We bring the gospel. We preach it to everybody fully and completely. Those who are his will come to faith. So John Chapter 6, 37 and 39, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, so the Father gives him, not every single one, but those whom the Father gives him, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why? Because God has called them. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In, the cha- in Acts chapter 13, the gospel is going out to the Gentiles, and it's unbelievable what's happening, and people are coming to the Lord, and, and it's the good news being preached to them. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And check this out, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Every single person that heard? Every single person who had the gospel preached to them? No, those who were appointed to eternal He has his people. We preach it. He brings them in. That's the deal. That's the idea. They will have their eyes open. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There's the purpose of his will. So it's not every single person. It's those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world that will come to him as the gospels preached to them. 2 Timothy 1.9, speaking of the Lord who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, not because of what we do, who we are, but because of his own purpose and grace. There it is, his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. So he has his people there. We bring the gospel and they are converted. Do you understand that? That's the, that's the idea. Listen, and I want you to get this point down. The preaching is not necessarily done in order to give everybody a chance at being saved. It's not necessarily why we preach the gospel. We hope that the Lord will save everybody. I pray, wish everybody were, would be converted to know, but that's up to the Lord. Our preaching is not necessarily done in order to give everybody the chance of being saved. That idea, especially of, hey, just choose him. Hey, just know him. Hey, make the decision yourself. That's relatively new thinking. It really came about in the second great awakening 
um, in our country. You could check out my history class on that. We talked about that, especially as the Methodists went out with, uh, with the gospel because they did believe that God left a little place in your heart for you to make that choice, yes or no, and once you heard the gospel, okay? It's, it's relatively new. Yes, the outward call goes of the gospel, it goes to everybody. It absolutely does. You preach it, man. You teach it. You, you try to persuade. You pray for people with the gospel of Christ. It's a free offer. Come to him. Come to him now. Come to him today and receive him. But you must know in your heart of hearts, it's only those who are called of God that will surely and most certainly come to him. It happens every single day. What happened to you, right? Why you and not your brother? Why you and not your... Are you smarter? Are you better? Do you know more? Did it just come to you? right you have to understand this is God's free offer of the gospel and he will bring his to himself through that that's the teaching of scripture again it's a really hard teaching it seems to be a difficult teaching but it's not really we're just the messengers we bring the gospel we tell people that they need to repent that they need to believe that Jesus lived that he died that he rose on the third day for sinners and 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 they, they need to trust in him for salvation. But God works in their heart to bring those whom he will to himself. He will surely do that. Again, it happens every day. This is why some believe. This is why others reject. Now, I want you to hear this. That might be hard teaching. But you know what would be even harder and what would be supremely, supremely unfair? If God required that man make a choice, that you must choose me, yes or no, right? I'm requiring you to make a choice. I'm giving you that will to make that choice. It would be supremely unfair if he required a man to make a choice and then he didn't give him the opportunity to choose. You think about that. You let that sink in. If he would say, you must choose me, not that I've chosen you, I'm bringing the word out, you're going to come to me, you must choose me. Then that means, how unfair is it that not every single solitary person on this planet doesn't have that opportunity to make that choice in that way? Understand? Think about that for just a little bit. That is tough. As we preach it, his elect hear with their hearts. You don't just hear, everybody can hear it but the elect here with their hearts. That's what changes us. That's why, that's why we come to him. We receive. We rest on him. If you look at the Bible, guys, what happens in the Bible? You say, make a choice. Make a choice. Make a choice this day, right now. I'm not thinking about Joshua. He's already talking to his people. He's saying, look, you choose this day you're going to serve. You're going to go to the pagans. You're going to stay with me. That's a different context. When it comes to salvation, what do you see? Even with Abraham, man. Did Abraham say, I'm making my choice. Yeah, I think yes. No. Abraham, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're coming. I've already called you. You're, you're going to come along. Think of the apostles. They say, oh, come on, Peter. Choose me. Come and follow me. They left everything. They were compelled to follow him. And then at Pentecost, when the gospel is preached, they were pierced to the heart. What must we do? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's gathering in. Paul, who was on the road to Emmaus, what happened to that dude? Was he just like, oh, I have a choice. He don't have a choice. We don't have, did you have a choice, man? No, you were compelled. You couldn't but help to trust in Jesus Christ when he called you. And you loved him and you gave your life to him in that way. Because he called you. He opened your eyes. You saw it. He said, man, I am a sinner. I am wrong. I need you, Jesus Christ. 
right? That comes from him. That's the gift of grace. And of course we receive it. Of course we rest in him. Of course we take that gift. But he does the work in our hearts. So the gospel goes out to bring in his elect. Do you understand that? Good. I hope so. Now, as we preach that, now we can transition and come to our text actually today because we need to have that background in in terms of God's election because now we come to the text and we talk about God's general or natural revelation, his creation, its function, its purpose. And then next week, we're going to see what people do with God's natural revelation, what they do with the creation that shows how deep their sin is and shows how desperately they need Jesus Christ. That's the big deal with general revelation. It doesn't save you. It can't do that, but it shows us the power, the glory of God, and how far away we are from him. You know that now, because when you go outside and you look there, what do you do? You praise God for that day. Unbeliever doesn't do that. They might praise something, or they don't praise Mother Nature, but they don't praise God like you do, because we know. They should, but they don't. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. So our text uh, this morning in Romans 1, we're going to speak to that. General revelation is this. It is God's good creation. It's all around us all the time. Uh, Robert Godfrey says this. General revelation is God's clear display of his glory and power in the work of creation. Simply put. The idea of of God's general revelation, this is a doctrine, this is a teaching, you need to know it. It's God, through creation, has made it abundantly clear, it's abundantly clear, that he exists, right? He's made that clear. He has made all of this for his glory and even for our good. And we have no excuse for not acknowledging him or denying him, but we do. And again, it shows how desperate our state is. So in Romans 1, he tells us this, that for what could be known about God, verse 19, is plain to them. It's plain because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Made, so they are without excuse. So that's the idea. We're told in these two verses when God revealed the truth about himself and it tells us what God revealed, what nature reveals about God. So number one, when did God do this? When did natural revelation, general revelation start taking place? Well, at creation, since the creation of the world. From that time, from the time of creation till now, till right now, to the present time and it will go into the future, this is a message this message about God has gone out into the world. Do you understand that? This, we're not alone in seeing this creation. What does it reveal about God? It reveals his existence, his power, his divine nature. Number one, when you go out, everybody should know this. Intuitively, they should know this. Intuitively, they do know it. We're going to see next week how they suppress it, how they twist it, how they turn it, how they change it. But intuitively, you should know that God exists. What do people say today? Oh, there's no God that exists. All this just got here on its own. Somehow, some way. That, that's the prevailing thought of the day, the context of which we live in. In older times, it was some other gods that made it or something happened here or something formed it there. Today, it's, well, puff the magic dragon, man. It just came out of nowhere, out of this little matter, and a big bang happened. And, you know, it just so happened that everything fell into place just perfectly so we have what we have today there's no glory to god there's no you know honoring of god or anything like that we thank mother nature herself mother nature there's no such thing as mother nature god is 
the creator of nature. So we know this is God. This didn't happen by chance. It's not a cosmic, random, chance accident. It is God who made all things. All right? Number two, his eternal power. His eternal power. When we think of the vastness, and the more we discover, you see the power of God in creation, that he is majestic, unlimited capacity of power. The created order, the vastness of the universe speaks to his omnipotence. He spoke all things into creation in the space of six days and all very good. That's the power of God. The spoken word, let there be, and it was so. That's the power of Almighty God. We see that in nature, in his creation. We see the power of God, the majesty, the vastness of it from the planets, from the universe, on out. We even see it here. We see it in the force of nature, right? That's the power of God that you see there. So even in in a thunderstorm, it just overpowers us. We think we can overcome nature? Try that. We live, we get flooded. When the water comes, there's nothing you could do. You just pray that it doesn't, you know, flood you out your whole house, right? That's all you could do. But even even one lightning bolt contains so much power and so much energy that we can hardly begin to fathom that. Andy might be able to tell us, but not right now at this time. But you see that. Job 37, 14 and 16 says this. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you not know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? God is all-powerful. He does exist. He's created all things in nature. Creation shows us that. Also, his divine nature, we're told, Paul said. This also is brought forth through creation. And the idea behind this is really his majesty. But we see that, that he's not part of creation. Again, we're coming way into this kind of new age, Eastern mysticism, this kind of teachings that say, well, you know, God is part of creation and creation is part of him. And we see God in all things. And this is why, wait a minute, stop. No, he's transcendent. He's majestic. He's above his creation. He created it. He upholds it. This is his divine nature. We sang Psalm 148. It does his will. Job 12, 7 through 10 says this, but ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea, and they will declare to you, who among these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Even they know and they acknowledge God. In his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. Amen and praise God. It shows his divine nature and his majesty. It does his will and he rules over creation. We have the magnificent, we see the the miracles in the Old Testament, but especially even with Jesus Christ, his power over nature. What did he say to the wind? Be still and listen to him. And he rebuked the seas and he calmed the seas. He is over He's transcendent over it. We see his divine nature. He upholds it by the word of his power. This is evident to people. We suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So this is part of the reason why there's no excuse. Why they know him and they twist it. Because now you know him. When you go outside, we praise and honor God for his goodness and glory. At least we better, right? We better do that because of who he is. 
And also we see that majesty and that beauty, that divine nature, as it were, in the utility and beauty of God, in the form and the function, in his care and in his goodness, right? The beauty, the intricacy, the variety, it's overwhelming how it speaks to the majesty of God, the, the, the mind of God. It's overwhelming beauty. It's stunning beauty. But it also serves an important function. And our God is not without his, his grace and mercy towards us. He doesn't make things simply to, to function right, but he gives them beauty as well for us. Doesn't he do that? Amen and praise God. That shows his majesty and his glory. So I use this illustration a lot. I use the baby's room. We could use a guest room if you want. If you have guests coming and you're setting up an in-law like place, little estate, what are you going to do? Just going to give them a room, empty, bare walls, just kind of the basics that they need and so on. No, man, you love them. So what are you going to do? You're going you're to make that room nice. You're going to get beautiful carpet, beautiful furniture, the best, things on the wall, everything that's going to make it feel like a home. That's what we do. God does that. It's not just utility. He could have made this place just so we could survive, but he doesn't. He gives us beauty. He gives us that, that um, stunning awe, majesty of his goodness, that he is so good to us. Right? It's not dystopian. It's beauty that he gives unto us, and we know that. Um, I just want to show you this just for a moment, just so you could see his majesty, not just the utility, but the beauty as well. Again, with a baby's nursery, you could have a crib in there, you could have this, but you make it so beautiful. Why? Is the kid going to know? Eventually, yes, but, you know, that's how much you love them. God does that too for us. I'm going to ask, um, Tony, will you hit the light, please? Just a, a slideshow, we're going to start in a second. Just so you see this majesty, this beauty of God, utility and his beauty in his creation. How can't you know that God exists? He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He spreads out the heavens and walks on the of the wind, he sends forth the springs from the valleys, they flow between mountains, the birds of the air dwell by the waters, lifting their voices in song, singing
just admiring the beauty of God's good creation. And see, that's what God has made. God has made it plain to them because God has shown them his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Just think about it. Everybody benefits. Every single person on this planet benefits from God's goodness, from his creation. We're sustained by it. We love it. And yet we fail to glorify and give him thanks. More next time on that aspect of it. But even think about the places where you want to live or you want to go on vacation. Where do you like to go on vacation? Don't even say New York City. You're out of here. No, there are some people that do like to go to the city. I understand. But, but yes, we're going to go to Hawaii. We're going to go to the beach. We're going to go to the lake. We're going to go to the mountains. We're going to go into God's good creation, and we're going to see that. And yet, we fail to give glory to God. The best places we want to go, people want to move because not just because, oh, the city or the benefits there, but because of the beauty of that. Let's go to Montana and check out the field. Let's go. When we drove across the country, man, it was so beautiful in its own way, in every way. Maybe not so much Ohio, but after that, there was beauty coming along, especially if you get past Kansas and you get into Colorado and you see the mountains. I'm majestic. No, the Kansas had its beauty with the fields. Um, every place does in God's good creation, but but down to... To, to Arizona and into the desert and then into the mountains. We're going to California. What are you admiring? You're admiring God's good creation, right? Come to the beach in California. We used to have psalm sings on the beach in California. How cool was that? Just admire. One day we took my in-laws in California. We started, my mother-in-law doesn't remember. She's like, what? <laughs> Where'd you take it? We started, we went to the mountains where there was snow, drove down to where it was sunshine, beautiful, tempered weather, to the desert, and then to the sea. Although we never made it to the sea. That was the plan, right? Did we get to the ocean? I think maybe we did get to the ocean. But we experience, why? It's God's good creation. That's what it is. And it's, and we glorify him in that way. And yet we fail to do that. God says, no, no, it's there. It's plain to see you suppress it. That's why you need me. Please turn with me to Psalm 19 because Psalm, uh, Romans 1 echoes Psalm 19. Psalm 19 teaches us this about God and his creation. Psalm 19, as you're turning there, just the the, uh, first six verses, we're told this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So Psalm 19 just kind of fills out Romans 1, or you you could see the, the connection there. What's it do? What's it teach us about God's good creation? What's it teach us about general revelation? That God is being proclaimed. It shows that God exists. His glory is being revealed from heaven. Check it out. It's a testimony. It's a constant 
consistent, relentless, 24 testimony to the glory of God. Everywhere you go, every time you step outside, it's a testimony to the glory of God. That's what creation is. That's what the psalmist is saying. Day to day, pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no way to get away from it. Then he goes on to say, there is no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. He's saying this about creation, that, that words aren't necessary. It's nonverbal. When you go out, it transcends words. No words are needed, and yet it speaks volumes about the glory of God, doesn't it? When you consider creation, so you won't even think about it that much anymore. We just take things for granted or complain about the weather. But when you consider creation, you can't help but bring honor and glory to God. So it goes on to say, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. No one is excluded, not one person. That's why it says they're without excuse. It's a worldwide witness to all people everywhere at all times. And he uses the sun as an illustration. He talks about the glory of the sun. Think about the sun, sustaining, illuminating, power, majesty, all of this for our glory. God is even good in his providence, in his witness of creation to the unbelievers. In Acts 14, 15 through 17, it says this, men, what, um, let me give a little bit of a context. This is when they wanted to glorify Paul and Barnabas, and they're calling them gods. They said, don't do that. Don't call us gods. They go on to say, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. Don't worship us. Worship God. That you, whom, uh, God, who made the heavens and the earth, he goes right to creation, the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good things and gladness. Again, that's God's providence, his common grace, but it has to do with creation. It has to do with that witness of creation. He did good, and you know that because he sent you rain. He sent you food in your season. That's how good God is to us. The Belgic Confession Article 2, usually we go to the Westminster Confession. This is another confession from a different group of Christians. And they say this, by what means does, by what means God is made known to us? Is God made known to us? Anyway, first, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as, most elegant, as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely his power, his divinity, and as the Apostle Paul saith in Romans 1.20, all which things are sufficient to convince men and to leave them without excuse. That's general revelation. That's a cool doctrine. That's what you need to know. It leaves one without excuse. Again, you put that in conjunction with our natures and you see why we don't acknowledge God, right? All these things point to him. God's witness, and we're going to end with this, is confirmed to us. You need to understand this. The more we learn about our universe, about our world, and the scientists who even deny God, the more we learn about the earth and the universe, the more and more it points to God. Not to man, not to an accident, not to some random things that just happened. It's, it, 
can't be denied, and yet man denied anyway. Again, we'll see how they do that next week and the consequences thereof. But just think about this. From what we've learned, we know, and this is to the glory of God, through science, we're the only planet in our solar system that can sustain life. We're just the right distance from the sun. Any closer, we would be too hot. Any further away, we would be too cold to sustain any kind of life. Chance, luck. Man, that was good. Good thing that that happened. The rate of rotation of the Earth spinning on its axis, any slower, even one-tenth slower than it actually goes at the present rate, the length of days would increase by 10, would, would increase tenfold, ten times. So our days would be ten times longer than they are, and so would our nights. You couldn't grow anything. We couldn't live in those conditions just because the rate of our rotation. Any slower, it's not going to happen. Just think about these things. I'm not trying to convince you or give you proof. I'm just showing you the glory of God that you can't deny it when you think about it. The moon is just the right distance from the earth. Do you know if the moon was any closer than it is, the tides would flood the continents twice a day? You know, high tide and low tide. Just a little bit closer. Yeah. The composition of our atmosphere is perfect to sustain life. 78 parts nitrogen, 21 parts oxygen. Any more, any less of either of those, you could not sustain life, couldn't breathe. See, God is so good. Does it all happen by chance and accident? We just kind of evolve in this way. Good thing that this happened like that. No. The angle of the earth is tilted on its axis at 23 and a half degrees. The tilting and revolution around the sun gives us our seasons. The atmosphere serves to protect us. It's like a protective shield. It filters deadly radiation from the sun. Also, it's dense enough to protect the earth from some 20 million meteors that enter it daily. So we can go on and on and on. This is fascinating stuff. We can go on and on and on. I do commend Answers in Genesis to you in a program on the so-called Christian station. It's at least a good program called Origins, if you can get into that, because this shows you. Again, we're not proving the existence of God. We're not trying to say, oh, you should believe because of this. This is the fact. And how could it be? But you're going to see next week how this, all of this, and it shows us how worthy of God's judgment we are because we take all that he's given to us and we suppress it in our unrighteousness. Say, no, I'm not going to believe in you, God. No matter how much evidence is out there for you, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to do it my way. So we'll talk more about that next week. So we're going to be in the same text. But today I just wanted to show you. Now, of course, the gospel is needed. General revelation is not sufficient to save you. You can't go out and look at general revelation and say, okay, I'm saved. I know some people have tried with the gospels in the star type of thing. Uh, back in the 90s, that was kind of popular. Early 2000s, you know, the, the, the sun signs or the zodiac. You know, you could see the battle, the Leo the lion and... No, you need the gospel. You need special revelation. You need, that's why we preach it. That's why we teach it. However, it does hold people accountable. It leaves them without excuse. No excuse for not acknowledging God, but they do not. It shows us that we should, but we don't. We should acknowledge him. We'll see what they actually do with the witness of nature, with God's general revelation. And once again, it shows us how sinful we are 
and how much we need the gospel of Jesus Christ and how gracious he is to come and give his life for sinners like us. We'll see that next week.